You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Diane Rehm. This program originally aired in 2017. Y'all are wonderful, and everybody has been so wonderful since I arrived. Can everybody hear me okay? Holler yes. Yes. Good. Um, I'm going to start by reading for you a little bit from my book on my own. People ask me many times why I wrote this book, and one aspect of that answer is quite simple. I really do want people to think about what they want for the end of life. It's such an important issue And we have all been so afraid for so long to talk about the end of life. And John and I talked about it a lot because we both believe that the end of life was simply a part of our journey. The other reason I wrote the book, and many of you who have not yet read it may be somewhat surprised to know that I have talked about our 54-year marriage in quite frank and honest ways. And the reason I have done that is because I don't believe there are any perfect marriages, (laughs) even those that last 54 years. Nor do I believe that there are any perfect people. We are all flawed, and we all have our faults. So therefore, I wanted to be as honest as I could in writing this book. And perhaps many of you will think too honest. But I do believe there is a value to this kind of honesty because somehow it frees us from those binds of somebody else's marriage is perfect or somebody else has a perfect wife or a husband. We are all imperfect and we are all going to die. So now let me begin on my own 
Chapter One, A Decision. On June 14, 2014, my husband John Ream, age 83, began his withdrawal from life. The aides at Brighton Gardens, his residence at the time, were instructed to stop bringing medications, menus, or water. His decision to die came after a long and difficult conversation the day before with his doctor, our son, David, our daughter, Jenny, who was on the phone from Boston, and me. Our daughter is herself a physician. John declared to his doctor that because Parkinson's disease had so affected him that he no longer had use of his hands, arms, or legs. He could no longer stand, walk, eat, bathe, or in any way care for himself on his own. He was now ready to die. He said he understood the disease was progressing, taking him further and further into incapacity with no hope of improvement, and therefore he wanted to end his life. Clearly, his expectation and his misunderstanding was that now that he had made his decision, he could simply be put to sleep immediately with medication. When Dr. Freed explained he was unable to carry out John's wishes, that he was prohibited from committing such an act in the state of Maryland, John became very angry. He said, I feel betrayed. Tears came into his eyes, tears of frustration and disappointment. Here was a man who had lived his life able, for the most part, to take charge of events, to be certain that his well-considered decisions would be carried out. And now he was making the ultimate decision and having it thwarted. It was then that Dr. Freed explained that the only alternative John had if he truly wished to die was to stop eating, drinking fluids, or taking medications. In other words, he could bring his own life to an end through those means, but no one could do it for him. Dr. Freed added he hoped John would not make the decision to end his life, but if he did so, as his physician, 
he, Dr. Freed, would honor it. My husband had moved into assisted living at Brighton Gardens in Chevy Chase, Maryland in November of 2012 because he could no longer stand, walk without falling, or care for himself without assistance. We'd spent months talking about the decision we both knew was coming. We went over and over various possibilities, such as having someone move into our apartment to care for him on a 24-hour basis, but we knew that wouldn't work. There was simply not enough room for another human being to be with us full time. Most days I spent part of the afternoon with John at Brighton Gardens. Sometimes we'd sit silently, particularly in the weeks immediately after he moved in. Although he never admitted being resentful, it was clear he was unhappy. He had a private room but he was now in an institution in the company of strangers, eating foods he did not care for in a large communal dining room and feeling an extreme loss of privacy. But slowly he regained his sense of humor, his interest in world events, and his happiness each time I walked through the door. Over the years, John and I had talked many times about how we wanted to die. We had promised we would do everything we could to support each other's wishes in the face of debilitating and unalterable conditions. Yet here I was, helpless to keep my promise. I could do nothing but listen as he railed against a medical and judicial system that prohibited a doctor from helping him die, even knowing that what awaited him was prolonged misery, misery further decline, and to his mind, loss of dignity. So John did what I dreaded, but knew in my heart he would do. He declared, he would stop eating, drinking, or taking medications. He asked Dr. Freed how long the process of dying would last. He was told it could be 10 days to two weeks. John wanted to know, will I be in pain? Dr. Freed responded, absolutely not. I promise you, I'll keep you comfortable. And so, on June 14th, 
John began to carry out his decision to withdraw from life, to begin, in his words, the next journey. Some of the aides at Brighton Gardens were clearly uncomfortable with the instructions to cease bringing all food, water, and medications, and during the first two days came to see him, asking whether he didn't want to change his mind. John said no, pleasantly, indeed cheerfully, as though somehow he had taken back his life and could do with it as he chose. So I sat by my side as my husband slowly died. I rage at a system that would not allow John to be helped toward his own death. He was a rational mind with no hope of recovery he had been declared within six months of death. He knew full well the only way ahead was a slow downward slide, moving toward even more incapacity and greater indignity. Why should it be that only a few states allow aid in dying with help from a trained physician willing to offer the ultimate gift? Why should my husband have to starve himself to death? I wondered too why John should have had to be so alone in the dying process. I cried the loss of what might have been this final intimacy between us, replaced instead by a long descent into oblivion, unaware of his family and friends beside him, offering him a loving farewell and wishing him a peaceful journey. I want to be clear with you how I feel about this issue of the right to die because I am speaking out around the country about this as I am to you here tonight. If you believe that God should be the only decision maker and you wish to leave it in God's hands as to when, how, where you die, I support you a thousand percent. If you believe that you should be entitled 
to every treatment and medication that medical science can offer to keep you alive. I support you a thousand percent. And if you believe that you have the right to choose that point at which you have finished with suffering and want the right to die, I support you a thousand percent. Thank you for listening. fair to say that New Hampshire misses you, Diane Ream. <laughs> How about for you, Diane? Do you miss not being on the radio every day? I do not miss getting up at 5 a.m. as I did for 37 years. I now sleep until 7 a.m. and what a luxury. Wow. Yeah. But do you think when you're hearing things, I mean, we are obviously at a pivotal time in our nation's history. A lot of norms are being upended. Um, it's a disruptive transition, certainly. So are you thinking when you're hearing, how would I cover this? I mean, th this is a talker. No, what I'm thinking is, how can I adapt this to the podcast to concisely uh, present somehow the news of the week through one or two voices. So it's a different experience. What I do miss about the daily broadcast is talking with you, having your comments as part of the program, because I have always felt that listeners with their questions brought in spontaneously, took us where we didn't expect to go, and that was always just wonderful for me. Well, as we just heard, that was just so moving to hear you read from the book, and it is a deeply personal book, mm. and not your first personal book. You wrote about finding your own voice, your life in broadcasting growing up. You and your husband together wrote a book about the difficulties and the joys of a lasting relationship in the book Toward Commitment. Do you think it's important for us to know the person behind that radio personality? Is that what moves you to tell your own story? You know, I have always felt that not only does the public need to be reminded that those of us who are behind the microphone or behind the camera are real people, but we need to remind ourselves of that. We are in some ways at a distance um, because we're in our own studios, 
you know, for years I was able to go out on the street to be in grocery stores. Nobody recognized me. And, and now I cannot go into Whole Foods without somebody stopping me at the grocery counter and saying, I miss your program, which is so lovely. Um, but I do think that for too long we idolized those folks. And, and perhaps they were worthy of idolizing. I think of Edward R. Murrow. I think of Walter Cronkite. I think of Roger Mudd. I think of those greats who were so gigantic. But that was when we all gathered together to watch one news broadcast and heard the news from one source. And now that's so different. I do believe that we are fallible human beings and need to display, disclose ourselves as such with the same kinds of everyday issues, problems, difficulties as you. Well, in this book, you show us so much of yourself, as we just heard, watching your husband of 54 years decide to die, decide to retreat from life. And at one point in the book, you write, I'm not a caregiver. You felt tremendous guilt for not leaving your job and being at his bedside every single day as if, you know, how could I not do that? And I wonder if you feel judged for that. Um, I did judge myself, but I also recognized that not only was I not ready to step away from the micro, uh, microphone at that point, I knew John would not want me to do that. John was not um, a person who wanted company all the time. John was a person who had a wonderful and rich internal life, um, which he did not always share. He was a poet, he was a writer, he was an attorney. Um, his work he was happy to share, but his poetry was his. His inner thoughts were his. Um, and I think in those last weeks of his life, he chose to share with me things that he had not shared before. Um, I think for him, the idea of my leaving work to take care of him would have been unacceptable. I know it was to me. Um, he was probably a better caretaker than I. Uh, the times when I had had to undergo surgery or have these voice treatments or, I mean, he always took 
care of me, but that did not mean sitting by my side. Um, so when the time came for that decision, I woke up in the middle of the night, it was 3 a.m., and I just knew something was wrong. And, and I quickly got up and found him lying across the floor. He had tried to get up on his own. He could not, he collapsed. And it took me, Virginia, an hour to get him back into bed. I could not lift him, but I did manage finally to get him onto his knees and then dragged him to the bed and then limb by limb got him back into the bed. He fell asleep right away. It was then, by then, 4 a.m., and I had to get up at 5, so I just lay there with my eyes wide open knowing we were going to have to make a decision. He said to me, sweetheart, I'm so sorry about what happened last night. And I said, not your fault, but I think we're going to have to talk. And so that night, we both came to the conclusion that we'd have to find a nearby living facility for him so that he could be cared for full time. So a really difficult decision. And as you said, you had those conversations about the end of life. When did you begin having those, do you think? Like when he was first diagnosed, when? Oh, no, oh, no, 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 much, much earlier. My mother had died at 49 before John and I ever met. My father died 11 months later of a broken heart. Um, I was 19 at the time. John's father, he had been a journalist. And after the war, uh, John and his father went searching around Pennsylvania and New York State. and finally bought this wonderful farm, a dairy farm. And John's father has never milked a cow in his life, but he bought a farm with 12 cows on it. And his father uh, lived there by himself because his mother loved New York and lived in Brooklyn. And <laughs> She would come back and forth from Brooklyn to the farm. In fact, John and I spent our honeymoon with my mother and father-in-law on that farm. <laughs> I would not advise it. <laughs> John's dad was living there by himself and developed diabetes 
and then diabetic retinopathy. He could no longer drive. And once that happened, John's father took his own life. And John's mother, she developed later on at age 90 a bad hip. Mm -hmm. And we had begged her earlier to have it operated on, but she wouldn't do it. And finally, at 92, she could barely move, and she took her own life. So there was death all around us, and therefore, John and I had talked a great deal about what we wanted for us. You know, neither one of us wanted to go into a nursing home. Neither one of us wanted to end life incapacitated. And each of us promised the other we would do whatever we could to make sure that did not happen. And yet, there seemed to be no alternative. John did not at the time he fell that night. And we talked about it the next day. He did not ever once say, I don't want to go. I want to stay here and I'm ready to die. He never said that. He said, fine, we'll go and we'll look together. And so we did and found this lovely spot and I decorated it exactly in the same mode with the same fabrics that were in our bedroom so that it would seem very much like home. So Virginia, honestly, uh, the kids knew how we felt. We had talked about death we were not afraid to talk about death because death had been very much a part of our lives. Question here from the audience. To what degree do you think society should be involved in determining an objective metric for human suffering, which is inherently subjective? It's a tough question. And the state of Oregon as you, I'm sure, know, the first state in the country to grant death with dignity, uh, the law being passed with the help of the organization Compassion and Choices, which also worked in California for passage of that law. And parenthetically, I do believe that California's passage of the law may be the tipping point. Um, well, thank you. Um, suffering is in the eyes and minds of the individual. What Oregon requires, however, as does California, is that two physicians determine that the individual is within six months of death. Oh, and one has to 
had determined a 30-day residency in Oregon. So you can't just go out there and say, I'm ready to die. Actually, we have several questions on that. Can you just go to another state? No, 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 no. You must establish residency, and you must find two doctors who are willing to declare that you are within six months of death. A physician then prescribes a lethal dose of medication, prescription only, which the patient must then have filled. That prescription and those medications are then in the hands of the patient to do with or without. And in Oregon, two-thirds of those individuals given prescriptions have used them. One-third have not. And those who have not have said they feel empowered. And that is what I am asking for for myself, and that is surely what my husband was asking for, and many, many people are asking for. The problem is that, and I know this sounds difficult and could be too difficult for many people, if you feel you are of a certain age, and if you feel you are having a heart attack or a stroke, the ambulance that comes and the healthcare workers are prescribed to help resuscitate you. And that's a problem. You may well be resuscitated, but you may not necessarily be in the same condition you were. I, at my age, though, as you've already heard, I'm going to be married in October. Thank you. And I am a very lucky and healthy woman, and my fiancé is exactly the same. He's three years younger than I, so I'm really a cougar. (laughs) But I have decided that if that should happen to me, if I feel as though some catastrophic thing has befallen me and I am by myself, I will not call 911. Um, Who knows? I may change my mind, but that's how I feel now. This is from a, a palliative care physician who asks, 
about the role of palliative care or lack thereof in assisting people with dying, what are your thoughts on the medical field's role in this area? So everyone knows what palliative care is? It's just treating the pain, right? I, I do believe that physicians have a huge role to play here. And the first thing I want to say is that my daughter, as I've mentioned, is also a physician. And when our son and the doctor, Jenny, was on the phone, I was in the room and John declared he was ready to die. Jenny hollered into the phone, but dad, we can keep you comfortable. And John said, very quietly, but very assuredly, Jen, I don't want comfort. I am ready to die. I think there are a great many people who would relish the idea of palliative care. And palliative care serves many, many people and purposes. My problem is that physicians have, for the most part, until recently, been trained to keep people alive. And only now have medical schools begun to teach physicians how to deal with those at the end of life. Physicians tend to shy away from the idea of recognizing that a patient does not want more treatment. Always there is that possibility of something else out there. That is not to say that everybody is going to be able to find a magic cure nor is it to say that everybody who gets a diagnosis like that should give up. There has to be that part within you that decides what it is you want after endless discussions with your family, with your physician, and as I've said, palliative care I mean, can be absolutely wonderful, at least in keeping people comfortable. But if comfort is not what you want and you're ready to end it, I think it is incumbent upon more and more positions to learn to accept that from their patients. Euthanasia is when someone 
is put to death by a physician. I am talking about the right to take one's own life into one's own hands. I was not there to tell people they should die. I was not there to tell people they should join Compassion and Choices. I was only there to tell people my husband's story. But the fact that I was there caused about 13 of NPR's biggest brass to come to our little station, WAMU, and shake a finger. <laughs> and um, I have pretty tough skin. Um, and I said that I would desist from attending those paid dinners, but I would not desist from discussing the issue on the air with the proviso that each time I did, I would say that I felt myself to be an advocate for the right to die. So that was the compromise that was reached. I think my own bosses were scared to death that because I happened to be a fairly outspoken and maybe a little stubborn <laughs> that I might say to help to all of you, I'm out of here, but I didn't. Um, so we worked out that compromise and now on the podcast, I can do any darn thing I want. <laughs> You do have pretty tough skin, although beautiful skin, I must say. But you write in the book about interviewing Joan Didion after she wrote her book, The Year of Magical Thinking. We interviewed her on this stage. I thought she might collapse. She did look so frail. And you noted the same thing. And you did not fall apart after your husband died. That is one of the things about this book that's so amazing, that year marker. There's fresh grief turning into, okay, I can do that. I can go out, I can have friends over. One marker after another of holidays and birthdays. But what made that possible, Diane Reem? What is that about you that got you back on the horse and back to work and doing what you do? I think that all of my life, and this is from being raised in an Arab household. Many of you perhaps do or do not know, my mother and father were both born in Mersin, Turkey. I mean, I lived in two worlds, Virginia. I spoke Arabic 
in the house. I went to school, I had friends, I was an American girl. Um, and when she died at such an early age, and then he died shortly thereafter, I was really on my own from a very young age. And I did not have an opportunity to go to college because my parents didn't believe in higher education for women. All the sons in the families went to college, but not the daughters. So I think I've, um, I'm an athlete. Uh, I played softball for the State Department women's team. John, you don't believe me? <laughs> I was a good second base person. And John was a pitcher on the men's team. And before long, uh, we got to talking about more than baseball, but we made a bet on that year's World Series. And I won the bet. <laughs> and he took me out to dinner for the first time, and that was the beginning of a really lovely courtship. Mm. You reflect in the book at John's memorial service, or after John's memorial service, about how sad it is, why we wait to say important things to people while they're alive, people we care about, people we admire. And you began this conversation tonight talking about no fear of death. How about now? Do you tell people about what they mean to you? Has that, is that something that's changed since John passed? Well, one thing that's happened is that even though I'm engaged to another man, I talk to my late husband every day. <laughs> I do. I mean, he, he was such a good man, but not perfect. Nobody is perfect. He was the most charming, sweet, kind man, and he could be a person who withdrew from me for weeks at a time. And that was hard. That really was hard. So now I find myself, when I'm speaking to a friend on the phone, when I'm speaking to one of my children or grandchildren, the last thing I say before I hang up is, I love you very much. Um, you never know. You never know when that last moment is going to be. But I think for us to be able to look at the reality of death as part of life, and recognize it as part of that ongoing world journey that we're all making, I think is to remove the fear and to help us all feel more comfortable. I happen to have great faith in God. Um, and I realize that that's helped me a lot. 
Um, so I look up into the clouds and I see John and I see God and I know John is there with some of my dearest friends in the world and even my little dog. <laughs> my darling little dog, Maxie, 13 and a half years old, about whom I've written a book, died just before Christmas. Aww. And he died in my arms, Virginia. It was really something. He loathed the bets. He hated to go to the bets. Any of you had the same kind of problem? <laughs> So he had congestive heart disease. I knew that. He was on all kinds of medication. But this one particular day, just before Christmas, he began gasping. So I picked him up. I live on the 14th floor. I picked him up, took him outside, thinking maybe fresh air would help. And for the first time in his life, he just sat down. Mm. So I picked him up, took him in, got him to the car, put him on my lap, and drove straight to the vets. Well, as you all know, dogs can smell when they get near the vets. <laughs> He's sitting on my lap. He's looking at me as though, what are we doing here? And all of a sudden, his little head went down, and he was gone, right there in my lab. So I rushed him upstairs, and of course, the doctors all wanted to do everything they could, and I rushed in after him, and I said, do not try to revive this poor baby. He's had enough. And that was that. So I do try to express my love, to express my affection, to be a good friend. It's very hard to lose those we love. I know that. I know that. I've seen so much death in my life. But what else? I'm 80 years old. And we do. But we need to acknowledge that it's a natural part of living.